0: This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It is meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At Super Age, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a Super Age? Welcome to episode 55 of the Super Age podcast. This will be dropping on October the 13th, 2021. So I read something really interesting today that a 75 year old today has the same mortality risk of a 65 year old just 10 years ago. So in the course of 10 years, the risk of dying has essentially moved up 10 years, um, which is really extraordinary if we think about that. And I I really think it speaks to this idea of, you know, we had a show a few weeks ago with Michael Royzen, and, you know, Dr. Royzen was saying 90 will be the new 40. And I, you know, you get a little pushback about that, but When you start to look at the statistics here, it's really quite something. And it's, you know, I I just want to caveat this. This is not like everybody. There's a huge crisis of obesity in this country, and there's an opioid crisis, and, you know, we we have a number of other issues to deal with. Um, But for people that are reasonably good health, um, you know, they're probably going to be around for a while. Um, You know, so planning for the future takes on, like, all these different permutations, right? Like, how long are you going to be working? How long are you going to be live? Um, How long are you going to be spending money? What do you want to be doing during that time? And then how is society as a whole going to adjust to this? Because there's a lot of stuff that's, you know, not really set up for this at least not yet anyway. So, going to be really interesting to see how this all pans out. This week on the show, we have my new friend Stacy London. And Stacy is a Stacy's just a force of nature. She's she's just brilliant for one thing. And at the age of 52, she decided that she wanted to run a product company. And so she has a new company called State of Menopause that deals with menopause products because she had a lot of issues when she was in menopause herself. And she thought, hey, I can do something about this. Now, if you don't know who Stacey is, you know her background is as a fashion editor. She had a lot of success with that in her 20s. And then in her 30s, she had a big-time TV show called What Not to Wear. But then she did this thing, right? At 52, she decided that she was going to run a company having had no experience with like any of that which is something i personally really identify with. So we're going to have a really wide-ranging conversation today about culture, about menopause and like who we are today and who we're becoming. Stacy's one of the sharpest minds out there that i know about popular culture and i'm just like super excited to bring this conversation to you. We're going to get with Stacey in just a second after a quick word from our sponsor. This week's show is brought to you by Cary Gran, my favorite skincare company. I love these people, I love their products. We're now moving into the fall, which is the beginning of, guess what, dry skin season. And I live in a place where the air is naturally really dry, and then you put the heat on, and so the humidity goes to like negative. It's just horrible, right? There's just like no humidity. And what does that do to my hands and my lips? It's not good. So what I do is they have a product called Lip Whip, and I use the neutral version of that. And I put it on my lips in the morning and the night. And guess what? My lips aren't chapped anymore. I use another product called their Essential Hydrating Balm. And I rub that stuff on my hands before I go to bed. And, I, you know, I wake up and my hands don't, they're not dry anymore. They make great products. It's all natural ingredients. As I say, you know, a lot with these guys, they really walk the talk. Female-owned, all-natural ingredients, great products. Check them out, k a r i g r a n. K-A-R-I-G-R-A-N.com. Hey, Stacy, how are you today?
1: I'm great, David. How are you?
0: I'm good. You know, I just noticed we're people that wear glasses, and you have, well, I've- Right?
1: You yeah, I've awesome become one of those people who wears glasses. Oh, yes.
0: I see. Uh-huh. Yes,
1: I only used to wear contacts. I wouldn't say it was vanity. I thought it was more convenience. But as I've gotten older, and certainly during COVID, looking at more screens, my eyes are so screwed up. I was like, I I, I need to just start wearing glasses. It's so much easier. You know, progressive contacts, mm. they, those last for about a year when you're aging. <laughs> And then yeah. you got to go to glasses. Then you really got to go to glasses. I like glasses. Well, I like them now, too. But I get, you know, there are people in two camps. There are those who have known me when I was younger for other reasons. And they're like, yeah, OK, you know, kind of miss you without glasses. And then there are the others who are like, your glasses are so dope. You kind of look like a young Gloria Steinem. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I I, will take that. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I guess as a guy, like we don't have like I'm looking at you. Um, I know this is all audio, but you, you're accessorized. I, yes. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I could do that, but it's kind of not my thing. So I don't have a lot of things I can like put on myself to say something. So.
1: Yeah. No, I and I, I actually, that's one of the reasons I like glasses on men so much is because you, you don't actually have the same. I mean, you, you know, that's not fair to say. I don't want to genderize this conversation too much. You always have options. I mean, if you wanted to wear tons of jewelry or a watch or, you know, other things, of course you could. But I think in general, um, it is interesting. Glasses are a wonderful accessory. They really they truly are like I think they're 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 a real personality gauge like right off the bat. And I, there, there, you know, you have, there are certain categories where I, you know, there are fashion glasses, even if they, they have a use value that really are sort of like kind of hipster in feeling, but my feeling about glasses is the geekier and nerdier you look in them, the better. That is really what, I mean, I don't know. I have such a soft spot in my heart for kind of the nerd geek look uh, that, that, uh, sometimes I think my glasses are a little too hipstery for my own good. I like being nerdy better.
0: Yeah. I mean, how long it took me, it takes me about a year to pick out a pair of glasses. Like I have to, I don't know how, I don't know how interesting this is going to be to anyone listening to this, but (laughs) it's like, if you wear glasses, you get it. Like it takes forever. Right. It's so
1: particular. Yeah, I'm particular, but I also, I have to say I have quite the collection. Like all of my accessories, which I have way too many of, once I started wearing glasses, then I couldn't stop buying them, right? Because, it's oh. like, it, because it becomes that thing of, oh, I can change my personality every day. I can go from hipster <laughs> oh, wow. to geek. I can, I, can, I can wear blue. I can buy black. I can have, you know, and there are so many, there are so many wonderful ways and uh, places to like buy affordable frames. So it's not like you have to spend a kajillion dollars every time you buy them. And I find them to be, again, this has become like a, a major accessory for me, certainly in middle age. And I kind of want to make the most of it. I want it to feel like special and exciting the same way, you know, high heels used to feel that way for me. Now I'm like, oh God, put me near a five inch heel. And I, I really, I'm ready to fall over.
0: You're so next level with this. I love it. <laughs> I'm
1: just... I mean, because nothing to me is only about use value, right? It's already, right. It's already about like, what is this saying about you? What does, right. this, what does this say about your style? What does this say about your personality? Does it say that, you know, it's funny how nobody seems to remember that we're still working with prehistoric software, right? So our brains are still in three second judgment mode, yeah. fight, flight, or freeze. But now we're like, oh, he's hot or she's not, or I love those glasses, or she dresses like I do. I wonder if we're like, you know, there's tribalism involved. Like, is this my person? So everything we wear and the way that we carry ourselves is so fundamental to the way that we first experience somebody. And I'm always like, you want to win at this game of life, make sure you're controlling the narrative. So your glasses do matter. They matter more than you think.
0: This, I, I wish there's so many guys that I have to sort of counsel on this.
1: Yes, yes. And I,
0: and you know what you were saying, like, um oh, well, it's just a functional thing. But if you're wearing something that's just functional, you're also saying something. You're the, expressing as- to the world something just by doing that. Like, everything counts.
1: Could not agree more. Right? Every, every decision you make registers in one yeah. way or another. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, is what you're putting down what people are picking up or are they completely misinterpreting it? And, and that's where you, you really have to think, kind of think about, well, wait, I am in control. How, how do I want this to appear? Do I want to appear efficient, minimalist? Competent, you know, maybe you're not going for the bells and whistles. If you want somebody to think more about your personality and flair, you're going for something that's bigger or more extreme or more exaggerated. And I think it's so interesting that people don't realize how much power they possess over the way they're perceived.
0: I, I, and this is so interesting because people, I tell people, like if you like, I'm gonna guys, guys are like the worst with this, right? They they just like They'll buy a, they, they don't buy clothes that fit, right? They just they just <laughs> they, me. they just seem incapable of that. And and they don't understand that there's a whole field of skill out there who of people who will help them like yes. tailor them, right? They're just invisible to them. And and so you're wearing these pants that are like four inches too long. And so what you're expressing to the world is this sense of unintentionality, yeah, as as you're presenting yourself, and you really want to be an unintentional person. Exactly. No, you and, don't.
1: And you don't. And also, no. you know, look, there are a lot of guys who I would say dress in a way that is kind of messy, intentionally, yeah. right? And that's because they're, you know, I don't know, they're rebels or they're, you know, they don't, they don't want to appear to care about uh, fashion or they want people to think of them, you know, I mean. Like the tech boom was the, you know, rise of the 12 year old in a sweatshirt <laughs> and who walks into a meeting with a skateboard and baggy jeans. And that was a statement, right? That's when we started thinking like, oh, if that's the guy in the room, that's the richest guy in the room, right? I mean, all of these different connotations as we, you know, as we progress as a society are going to mean different things. But intentionality is such a such a good word for it, because, again, I think people forget the kind of power that they have with their own intention. And if you, if you sort of, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Abdicate that mentality, mm-hmm. then you are allowing people to make decisions about you that may or may not be true instead of having kind of more control over it. It's like, you know, being the director of your own movie. Cut where mm-hmm. you want to cut, edit where you want to edit, like, you know, create the mood that you want to create. And nine times out of 10, you really will actually impart the kind of feeling that you, that you want people to register. Let me say that again, that you want to register with people, with, with others.
0: And, I, and I, to me, I think this idea of intentionality, it's not just what you wear. Yeah. Be intentional about what you eat, about yeah. what you do, about who you hang out with. Like don't yep. be asked, you know. Like you, you, you have this within your power.
1: <laughs> it's, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, and I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I will tell you that that is something that it took me uh, quite a few years to learn. Right? That we are not sort of at the hands or at the mercy of fate or the universe or whatever. Right? To me intentionality is that sense of free will. And every time that, even when I complain about my life, believe me, I'm I'm not not like yippity, zippity, doodah all the time. But the thing is, we do forget that we are agents of choice and that we are, you know, capable of creating lives that we don't want to run away from and you know one of the things it's funny that I've been talking about lately that's come up a, a few times for me is I don't know if you remember the book this was like the first self-help book I ever saw on like my mom's bookshelf or something was The Road Less Traveled sure. by M. Scott Peck yeah. and I remember opening it and the first sentence is something like I may be paraphrasing here life is hard yeah And it really struck me because even as a little kid, I I remember thinking, you know, why am I not happy? Or why didn't I get this dress? Or why didn't I, you know, all of the things that went wrong as if somehow I was like predetermined to deserve happiness at all times. And I remember being eight years old and saying to my mother, like, I'm not happy. I, I don't know what, what am I supposed to do with my life to make me happy? And she was like, You can't worry about happy. You need to think about what you can do to infuse your life with meaning and with Mm -hmm. purpose. And it really struck me. It really stayed with me. This idea that, first of all, we are not, um, you know, there's no law that says that, you know, we are meant to be happy. We have to value happiness and we have to choose happiness. But to think that that's our starting point is so kind of ludicrously human in that you know we think we deserve things without having to work for them in this really kind of funny way and that you know happiness is is a given it's a prerequisite to being alive instead of this idea that with intention you can build a life that makes you happy and we forget that we we forget that as kids I think you know partly because our parents raise us and we feel, you know, for the most part, if we're lucky, we feel that we're growing up in, in a sort of safe zone. But you know, once we become adults, once we stop blaming our parents for screwing us up or whatever else we think they did, then, then we really have to get to the work of being intentional in our own lives. And it's very easy to fall into the self-pity, woe is me trap. Like, this didn't work out for me. That didn't work out for me. Why didn't I get this? Why didn't I get that? Instead of saying, you know, work with what you got and continue to create intention to be where you want to be in your life. I mean, I'm sure it was a meme I read somewhere on social media, but create a life that you don't want to run away from, to me, is such a magical way of thinking about it
0: that's exactly right Mm. um you know i think people get confused with this idea of um what will make me happy so there's like a lot of navel gazing involved in that and i think that's a disaster i think it's much better to say like how can i be useful
1: yes and
0: and you're going to be happy if you're useful and i and and i think this is sort of the um the problem rich people have right (laughs) Right. Like some kid grows up in a rich family and all he's all about like, oh, I'm going to make myself happy. And and they they get all twisted up because they lose the idea of what's my purpose? What's my meaning? They they confuse that with how can I be most consume the most pleasure and be most happy? And then, oh, boy, do they get untethered? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I also think, you know, again, we tend to conflate pleasure and happiness. Right. Yeah. I think that happiness is pleasurable, but pleasure doesn't really necessarily have anything to do with happy. And it is a it's a really interesting contradiction. But I think that just to your point, and again, this is something that I feel like I really struggled with when I was in my 20s and 30s is really what is what is going to make me happy? Mm-hmm. Like what do I need is mm-hmm. it fame is it money is it power is it love what what are the things that are going to make me happy instead of saying you know what can I do to create a life that includes happiness and mm-hmm. this idea of use value as a person and mm-hmm. this idea of having purpose as a person is so incredibly undervalued in our society we look externally for everything that we want and need and, and certainly to validate us rather than the exact opposite of that or the inverse of that, which would be to be as useful as, other, as possible to others and gain happiness and satisfaction and gratification from that and really a sense of purpose and identity.
0: I, I have read about the, the Japanese idea of ikigai Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Japanese are famous for living forever and, yeah. and, and, they tend to work for, like, I, I remember I landed at Narita a couple of years ago and the people checking you in, like when you kind of go through these like automatic immigration machines, they range from like 18 to apparently like 85 or 90 Yeah, and everybody was like really engaged in their thing because they, they had, they had purpose, they had, they had meaning and through that they find happiness, but. I, know. I want oh, to I se- think
1: think, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Didn't I, just,
0: I, I, I want to segue into this this sort of audacious, crazy thing that you've done. So oh now, yes. Oh, <laughs> right. This other thing that you've done, right? Uh, um, which is related to this topic. Uh yeah. so you're now the you know respectable age of fifty two. Congratulations. I am. I uh, am.
1: Thank well you. done. Thank you. <laughs> Got here all on my own.
0: All on your own. Um, and you've just started this new thing. What did What did you do?
1: Yeah. So. I have recently pivoted to being the CEO of a a company that I acquired. It was brand at another company and I acquired the lion's share of the equity. It's called State of Menopause um, for a couple of reasons. One, I was a beta tester for the brand because I knew the founders of the original company. And at the time that I was a beta tester, I was finally starting to put together the dots that was the perimenopausal experience for me. And I had very easily, since nobody told me about menopause, one, I thought it was optional. And two, I thought it happened to old people. Okay. Whatever old means. Um, But also, I did not recognize, uh, nor was I educated about what the kind of changes I was going to experience in the menopause experience were going to be. So at first, I was just excited that anybody wanted to talk about menopause because I was like, I don't really know what it is, and I don't know what's happening to me. And the two things that um, I hear all the time is, I don't feel like myself, and I don't know what to do. And of course, I've heard a lot more about this since I started the, the business, but for me i would i i really i really i want to say that i i decided to pivot at this stage of life for a couple of reasons one uh my telephone wasn't ringing it's not like anybody was like hey let's do a television show about menopause and multigenerational mentorship which was what i was really interested in doing um and two you know I had a very difficult perimenopausal experience. I could not go on hormones for a lot of reasons. And I had two seminal events happen while I started to experience perimenopause without recognizing it. So the first one was that I had pretty major spine surgery in 20, at the end of 2016. And my father died in November of 2018. And during that time, I think I had every perimenopausal symptom that it are there are 34 common ones. And I think I had all of them, all of which I dismissed as symptoms of either physical trauma from the surgery or emotional trauma from losing my dad. And those two events probably amplified all of those things. But what really astounded me was that I had no way of connecting the dots. And when I look back now, when I think about the fact that if I had been aware or educated about what was happening, I would have had so much more agency around it. So the first thing was that I wanted to start this company out of my own existential crisis. There weren't any products that I felt were really helpful. There isn't enough information that's really helpful. although A lot more is coming and I see it popping up every day, which makes me so excited. But also because we tend to conflate, especially you know, for women and half of the population that is going to go through this, um, we conflate aging and menopause. And the biggest issue through about that is that we start to feel, we internalize a sense of shame about being this sort of past our expiration date, which, you know, Uh, coincidentally, sociobiology sort of says the same thing that we were just talking about before with being a caveman and making a decision about somebody in front of you. Once a woman is no longer fertile, right? What is her use value? Sociobiologically, right? But we're so far past that culturally. The idea that we are still stuck thinking that after you stop menstruating, you somehow lose value in society is absolutely ludicrous. So for me, I started to feel that sense of cultural irrelevancy even though no longer being able to procreate was of no interest to me whatsoever even when I could I didn't want to right so it was never about this mark of oh I'm no longer able to have children I guess there was like maybe a little bit of a little bit of grief over you know my body can't do what it once did but you know I also can't do a handstand anymore either so it really meant very little to me but what the physical changes felt like, my body, how my body weight started to redistribute in ways that I'd never experienced before, my skin started to look awful, it was dry and, and I felt uh, uncomfortable all the time, my anxiety went through the roof, I had mood swings, I had insomnia, hot flashes, night sweats, brain fog, all of that happening to you at once really unmoors you from anything that feels solidified in your life. And on top of that, this is the stage of life where women in particular start to lose their earning potential and their earning value. And all of those things, not being called for to do television and not being able to figure out sort of what I wanted out of the next part of my career, aside from all of these physical and and truly mental health issues, kind of knocked me off my socks. And there was nobody to turn to. My doctor said, yeah, this is menopause. You'll get through it. My my OBGYN said to me, you know, use it or lose it. When I said, I don't want to have sex. I don't feel like having sex. I I don't feel sexual anymore. It's not even a question of objectification. I'm just not into it. What's wrong with me? And she was like, well, you've got to use it or lose it. And I was like, this could not be more unhelpful if you tried. And it is a very isolating experience to feel like all of these things are happening at once. And there is nobody to tell you one, that it's a natural transition. And two, there aren't enough products out there to help ease these issues. So that is the real reason. But the other reason is that I was 52 years old, sort of faced with the idea that maybe I won't do television again. What is it that is the through line, the kernel of truth that runs through everything that I have done in my career? From the time that I majored in philosophy and psychology in college, to the time that I was a magazine editor, to the time that I was a freelance stylist, to the time that I started on What Not to Wear. And all of it has always been about self-esteem, self-acceptance, self-awareness. And if I wasn't going to do that through clothing per se, right? what was going to be an extension of style that allowed me to meet the needs of a community in crisis? Or not even in crisis, I was in crisis, but allow me to meet the needs of a community that certainly was looking for answers where there were none. And as I've aged, my interest in style has kind of grown into an interest in wellness into an interest in health that, that feels very similar to me than what I did in fashion in that, you know, I used to tell people look good and you'll feel better. And now it's feel good and you'll feel better. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, they're all connected. I will never be over style. I will always have that in my DNA, but here was a place where I saw women and those who identify as women really struggling, not just with the age factor of it, right? Because if you come to this chronologically, it's usually between 40 and 60, somewhere around there. But also just this idea that menopause and aging are not the same thing. And you may experience menopause because of uh, a radical hysterectomy or because um, you have cancer. And chemotherapy can give you, can push you into medical menopause or you're gender non-binary, right? This has nothing to do with age. But for the most part, for the majority of the population, you we are coming to this because of age. And Scientific American did a study that said that the lowest point of happiness in a woman's life is 45 to 54. Big surprise right? Not only is this usually when you're going to start to experience menopause, but it's also when we start to, you know, we're still involved in childcare, or we have empty nest syndrome, we are losing our parents, or we're having to deal with elder care. This is a very difficult moment in our lives. It's not impossible by any stretch, but it is a new transition and iteration that is not discussed enough. And it made sense to me if you look back in history that nobody was talking about menopause or very much else after 50 because we died. But now that our lifespans are going to be, you know, at least till 80 or 90, and probably even longer in the future, what are we going to do with this time? And I really truly have come to see menopause as an opportunity, not just because your body is changing and because you, are, you may be dealing with emotional issues that feel difficult. Menopause is hard. I'm never going to sugarcoat that. But it is also an incredible opportunity to actually pause, to actually take this time and say, right, what do I want for my life now? How am I safeguarding my health for the next 40 years? What does this next version of me? look like and what am I becoming? Because the one thing that I hear so much is that people get stuck in who they were, not who they are and not who, what they could be, right? We're never looking forward. We're always kind of pining at a certain point in life for youth. But the fact is we're gonna be older so much longer than we're gonna be young. We need to change our perspective about where we are on this timeline of life and what we are doing to create meaning and use value and purpose at this point. And for me, my existential crisis led me to creating a company to meet the needs of others in a way that I felt was really lacking in the world.
0: You said something, Stacey, about you thought that this would never happen to you. Yeah. What t- Talk to me about that.
1: Well, it's the same way I never, I, I didn't really, You know, I looked pretty much the same from 32 to about 48, right? And then I started to notice things going south, literally. I mean, gravity is a bitch. But like, I never had a tummy. And all of a sudden, I started gaining weight. And I had like a, you know, what I call the meno middle. Um, I never thought that my jowls were going to drop into my neck. You know, I didn't think that my skin texture would change. And all of a sudden, you start to look in the mirror. And I was like, who the hell are you? And it's not, on a, on a theoretical level, of course I knew that I was going to age, but on a psychological level, I've been told that most people, like there are jumps when you start to see real changes in the way that you look, right? We see it, we see ourselves pretty much every day, but it's something like every seven years, you actually start to see the toll of age take place. Now, in some ways that makes sense to me. Every cell in your body changes, right? Over time, it dies and is reborn every seven years. So it doesn't surprise me that every seven years is when you really see changes. But the difference between 47 and 48, for me with a little bit, I was talking to my sister who is 35. And she said to me, the difference between going to see her gynecologist at 34 is like, oh, you got plenty of time get pregnant when you want to 35 when she was like, are you freezing your eggs is a little bit the way I felt when at 47, I was like, I still got it. I, you know, my bod still looks good. My hair is shiny. My skin looks good to 48. When I was like, shit just went south and it wasn't. And again, it's not like I didn't on a theoretical level know that this was going to happen, but it's very different when it becomes visceral. It's very different when you go to put clothes on in the morning and they don't look right on you anymore. You go to put clothes on or you don't feel like they represent you anymore. Like there is this stage at which I realized that the static kind of understanding of myself, of my looks, of my mental and physical capacity was actually never going to stay. It was, I I can't hold on to what was. And I really had to start looking at what i've been becoming for the last 6 years what knowledge i've gained what acceptance and and peace i've had to make with the aging process and this transition what it feels like and how not to look in the mirror and yearn for something that no longer is but how to look in the mirror and be excited for what is now and what's to come and you know as women i think we're 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 so criticized for aging. And that's why you see a whole generation of people who, you know, are happy to have facelifts and do Botox and use filters on Instagram and no shade to any of those people. I have done this myself. I mean, I haven't had a facelift, but still, you know, maybe I will in the future, I don't know. But the idea that we are doing that as a way to kind of quote unquote age gracefully, uh, a phrase that I hate, Because really that's just saying, oh, yeah, she's done enough work to look really good for her age, which makes me insane, right? This idea that we are somehow tying our physicality to staving off the aging process. You may look, you know, due to the wonders of plastic surgery, uh, much younger than you are, but you're still aging and you're going to have to come to terms with that, whether you like it or not and for me that has been a true a true acceptance process one that has been hard you know it's not just about losing my dad and realizing that i was sort of next up to bat but also kind of recognizing that there are things that i'm not going to be able to do anymore and there are things that I did in my past that I will always have as loving memories that I won't be able to do now. And I have fewer days in front of me than I do behind me, probably. So, doesn't that make this moment, this middle, that much more important and that much more exciting? Because, you know, I sort of look at it as like, why not? change and pivot and do something at 52 what else should i be doing should i be sitting around mourning that i don't have the career that i had at 32 what would be the point in that where where does the purpose lie in that instead of looking around and saying hey where is somewhere i can help out where can i redefine my purpose where can i redefine my sense of self-worth based on other things than maybe i did before and how do, I, how do I create community out of that? I mean, you know, I certainly think that's what you've done with this podcast, right? The whole idea is to talk about aging in a way that feels productive and meaningful. And I think for women, it becomes a little bit harder because there's this sense of being left behind that men don't seem to experience in the same way. And again, I don't want to gender this conversation because there's a lot of gray area in the middle here. But just, you know, people love uh, George Clooney, no matter what age he is. But, you know, actresses certainly don't get the same kind of um, uh, street cred for getting older. And in some ways, I think that's such a shame because we have so many beautiful women who are, you know, famous or not famous, who don't feel as if they're allowed to evolve. That they don't feel that they're allowed to change physically and still be considered, you know, still have the same kind of social currency that they do when they appear younger. And that that is part of the conversation that I want to change. It's part of it. The other part of it is that menopause is a bitch, and we have to figure out how to educate people so that even if she's a Mack truck driving towards you, you have time to put on some armor. You know what's going to happen. There's the difference between being suddenly hit by a truck and knowing that a truck is coming, right? And that, for me, is really the crux of this, is... Are there products that can help you in the moment? I believe in rapid relief over the counter. I'm not interested in medical grade. I'm like, I want my I want state of menopause to be synonymous with like neosporin and band-aids, right? You know why you go to those products and you should know why you're coming to us. But it's also this, this bigger conversation about information and education about this stage of life. Nobody, nobody wants to talk about it. Why not? I love this idea that we're innovating for the darkness. We're innovating for the things that people have constantly kept in the dark. And what happens when things are in the dark? They're scary. And the minute you turn on the light, you realize there's no monster in the closet. There's no monster under the bed. And that's how we move the needle forward.
0: Yeah, I I think that um, there's a lot there to unpack. (laughs)
1: sorry i and you just (laughs) i could just talk and talk and talk you could just tell me to shut up
0: too i love it (laughs) Uh, so i i I think there's like two kinds of um image reflection so there's Mm. the the mirror the the physical mirror and i think that we all have a certain kind of age dysmorphia yes agreed it's it's like you know i'm i'm actually i'm going to be 63 in november i don't I don't know what 63 is supposed to feel like, but I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know. I think I'm like in my head, I think I'm like 38 or something. Yeah. But then there's like, what's reflected to us from others. And I, and I think that with young, like, as you were saying, you didn't expect this, what's going to happen to you. And I suspect that some of that is because of the social reflection you're getting. Cause you're like, you're cool, you're hip, you're fit. And so people, people register us as being, different. Like they don't register us as being younger. Right.
1: Yeah. And also, and I would say, you know, one that has to do with, you know, personality and spirit and, and I'll tell you, there was a, a period of my life where I was spending because I didn't get married because I didn't have kids. Right. A lot of friends, my age who went on to get married and have kids became less available to me. Mm. Right. And if I would go and see them, it was really to spend time with the kids and not really get that kind of one-on-one time that I used to have with those friends. And the really interesting thing is there are a few friends my age who all have taken this route. We were either, you know, very busy with our careers or made the conscious choice not to have children or get married. And I realized that my friends were getting younger and younger and younger Mm -hmm. to the point where a lot of them were maybe close to 20 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And it became a problem. Mm -hmm. It became a problem, not because I don't love them, but I, you know, I think they're wonderful people, but it became a problem because it was, it was, um, it was definitely deforming my identity or, Mm -hmm. or my sense of my identity to be around people who were just starting to get married, who were just starting to have kids, who were just starting to succeed in their careers. And there was a real sense of both, you know, disconnection and also envy. Because being around that kind of youth constantly made, reminded me that I was no longer there. And I really had to course correct and make sure that I started spending more time with friends who were my age who could from my you know had my vantage point and my perspective because the one thing i didn't want to happen with people who were younger than me was for me to be like oh you young whippersnappers you do things so differently and you know counseling them as if i was some wise sage they're my friends right and they also are digitally native and they they have so much to teach me but what i didn't want to do was immerse myself in a world in which frankly i don't totally belong And I didn't want to be a teacher, and I didn't want to be a student, and I didn't want to be envious of people who had their, you know, 20 years in front of them that I'd already lived. I wanted a balance to be around people my own age. And the really interesting thing is that I think my younger friends never realized what kind of crisis that was creating in me because they didn't see me as any particular age. They're much less aware of it than I was. And so, you know, I agree with you. I think there is this sense that one, we never grow up on the inside. Like I'm, you know, I'm somewhere in my early twenties, possibly, and um, sorry, something just happened on my computer. Okay, there we go. Maybe I'm, maybe, maybe, you know, you said 38. I feel like 38 was like one of my best years. Did I lose you? No, I'm here. OK, sorry about that. Something keeps sorry. happening up, popping up on my computer. Anyway. Um, I would say that 38 was maybe, maybe my best year. So let's say let's just say we both feel 38, right? And I would say younger generations are, are maybe I don't want to say that they're less in touch with age, but the younger you are, the less you think about aging right? And I think Mm -hmm. so when you're around people who act like you and have fun like you and want to go out like you, you kind of don't think about their age. But for me, on the opposite end of that, I think that there was physical, as I said, physical and emotional changes that Mm -hmm. made me incredibly aware of how young the people that I was hanging out with were. And it didn't feel good. It didn't always feel energizing. It felt alienating. And it's one of the reasons that now I I'm, I make such a concerted effort to spend time with people my age or older, because I need that perspective. I need to remember that where I am is exactly where I need to be and not chasing this idea of what it feels like to be 32 again. I'm just I, I can't. I can't go there. And it's funny, we were talking about it. Um, I was talking about this with friends yesterday who said, God, you know, it must be hard. You look at yourself on television when you were younger and now you're so different. And I'm like, well, first of all, I never look at myself on television. But what, what it did make me think about was like, you know, really big movie stars from the 40s or the 50s or the 60s, right? Do they look, Do how does it feel to look back and know that your youth was memorialized in a way that you can, it's like, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray, right? It's like watching yourself age once you've been sort of canonized in some way, you know, for the rest of time, looking one particular way is a very hard thing to cope with. And I don't actually think you need to be in television or movies or anything to experience that. But even that idea of Oh, you know, my best age was this, or, you know, it was the time in my life I was most in love or I was most successful, or I was, you know, whatever it is, we hold on to that as, as this kind of litmus test by which we measure the rest of our life instead of actually being able to value whatever stage of life you're at and also be able to appreciate what was and to be excited for what's coming. I just think at at this stage, it's almost like we kind of we fall into a funny ditch. That's that's how I felt. And I have been pulling myself out of that ditch um, every day that I've been working on this company, because just to come full circle, I feel like I have purpose. I feel like I'm not doing this for me, the company may, you know, have started by resting on my shoulders, but that's not what the company is for. The company is for a whole community of people who haven't had resources that they need. And we've been, you know, the fact is it's 2021, how can we just be talking about this?
0: Uh, You know, I think there are huge gender differences in aging, as you said. And I'm, you know, I have, guy friends that are you know 40 and i you know i'm around them and i and i remember like it, it's very clear to me what they're doing yeah they don't see what they're doing but i see what they're doing and i think oh yeah i know where this is going to end yeah. I know. because i because i i you know at 40 I was not a particularly sophisticated human i, I think i've got a lot better but <laughs> you know, and and you you just sort of smile and say, like, okay, yeah, why don't you why don't you try that? I mean, you see well, how that you know, works
1: out. So that's funny because I really had the opposite feeling. I mean, also, you know, just in general, like generally, I feel like women are smarter than men, but that's just true, <laughs> it's true. Um, <laughs> emotionally and intellectually, but that's another conversation. But you know, here I was hanging out with like 30 to 35-year-olds who um had a much better handle on the world, I think, than I did. Right? You know, they were really of this kind of digitally native world. They um, were much more involved in, you know, being millennials and young millennials. They, you know, they cared more about climate change and political causes in a way that my generation came to the game kind of late to. Right? Gen X, we weren't. My mom burned her bra. I, I have never done such a thing. Right. Um, My revolutionary act, in in a funny kind of way, is talking about menopause, right? This is, you know, an area that I don't feel has been given any airtime by any generation before me. And it is up to Gen X to kind of make this and normalize this conversation and make it a priority, Um, But the people that I was hanging out with were younger, sort of always made me feel like I was a little behind the times that I didn't Mm -hmm. really understand where they were. And again, that sense of feeling obsolete, that sense of feeling culturally irrelevant, I found really painful. Mm -hmm. I found it, I really had to push past the ego of that situation, in order to figure out like, how to write the ship, right? And part of that was like, well, I need a mix of friends who are different ages. So I don't constantly feel like I'm somehow behind the conversation that's happening with my younger friends. And certainly that there's more of, you know, kind of a shorthand with people who are my age. And then again, the people who are older than me, who I still believe have so much to offer in terms of wisdom. The more days you're on this planet, the more experience you have even if you are not a digitally native human right i always say there's this there this is a, an incredible time to be alive we are as certainly as a generation in the middle of the industrial revolution and the digital revolution right the techno- technological revolution and i have one foot in remembering a rotary phone and i have one foot in ai right and knowing what's coming right all of these things and all of my friends fall on either side of this, and what's so interesting is that before my eyes, right, since maybe 2005 or six, when when we really started to see things in social start to change, and this idea that we could kind of gather in chat rooms and all sorts of things, maybe even earlier than that, um, I remember thinking this this is just the beginning. There is a tsunami behind what is starting, and it made me realize that life was no longer going to be linear the way it was set up in sort of the industrial revolution, right? The idea of a family and somebody went to work and somebody stayed home with the kids and you worked until you could retire and then you died. All of that is over. And it's really bared out exactly as as I kind of imagined that it would, only in the sense that Nobody is leading a life where you go to school, you go to, you know, maybe you go to college, you get a job, you wait to get promoted, you get married, you have kids, you get the corner office, then you retire, and then you die. Nobody lives like that anymore. Nobody's goals are set up like that anymore. If you talk to young millennials or Gen Z, they care more about climate change than they do about owning a house. And it was my goal in life to own my own apartment because everybody in my family is a New York renter right? So it's just that this priority shift has come with a kind of technological revolution. The fact that we don't eat the same way, we don't work the same way, we don't date the same way, all because of technology. And it means that we have to look at life differently. It means that We don't just have one beginning and one end. This means there's room for a zillion different iterations of the way in which we wanna choose to live our lives, including pivots, which is what I see this one to be. This is my third career, right? I was in magazines, I was in TV. Now I'm doing this, who knows what'll come next? But the idea is, is that I don't believe that I just have one career in me anymore. That kind of antiquated thinking I think holds a lot of us back from doing things that we may have always wanted to do or maybe didn't even know we wanted to do, but we have been afraid to try anything new. And you know, what is the worst that can happen here? What is the absolute worst that could happen with this company? The worst is that it doesn't work. The worst is, is that not enough people know about it, not enough people like it. It doesn't get out in the world. I can't scale it. I can't raise money for it. So what? I pushed this needle, I kicked the can down the road for somebody else to do what I can't. And I still very much believe that I I am the person to do this. I very much believe that I am in the right place and the right time in my life. I believe in the auspices of right timing. Um, And I do think that because of my age, I am in the right position to do this, that I don't think I would have been able to do any earlier, right? I think about the fact that a lot of people who create companies create them because they get to the place where they are and the thing that they need doesn't exist. It is, you know, right. Necessity is the mother of invention, but that definitely applies to us as we age and figure out what we need and understand that, you know, maybe it's not just us that needs something. And that's how great ideas and great companies are born. That's
0: right. I, um, I can't tell you, I, I, I a because of the business we do. Um, I get a call, I don't know, once a week from some very bright Columbia business school graduates who are like, Hey, we got this great idea. Let's sell shit to old people. <laughs> and, and I just it's like, okay, <laughs> right. right. Uh,
1: what's your idea? Dentures? What do you, what do you, or, you what, got?
0: Or whatever kind of like nonsense right. because they're what they're, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're attempting to time travel into the future, very unsuccessfully.
1: Yeah.
0: And you know, it's, it, what you said is that successful companies come not from like some kind of spreadsheet projection. Um, because what, then what you're trying to do is you're trying to like be telepathic yes. with these other people out there and no, no, it's just like, what do you like? What works mm-hmm. for you? Mm. and understand that you're not a market of one that there's yeah. like millions of people like you and that's really hard i find with um i i have these kind of conversations all the time yeah. and um it's especially with you know in like advertising marketing world they um fortunately this is why we have a business they they'll they'll come to us and they'll say like hey we're we're, we're 32 and we want to kind of do this thing with People your age, and we, we know we don't get it. How mm. h- how do we do it? How do we do it?
1: Um,
0: and uh, I I think that th- that's why you're in the right place at the right time. You know, we're always in the right place. We we are where we are. We're never in the. How do I say this? We're never the wrong age. We're right. always exactly the right age. Right. And 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 I th- and I think that like a lot of this stuff that I hear, I, I hear from people who are young. They're like, oh, I'm the wrong age to do whatever. No, you're not. You're just like the right age to do the thing you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't care if you're 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever. You're the right age for that. You know, it's, and, and you had a phrase earlier, Stacy, like, don't be the person you were, be the person you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking forward, the person that you're going to be. And, I, and, you know, I think this idea, I think a lot about people's fears, and I think people fear two things equally. They fear success and they feel failure equally. And they get stuck in the mediocrity of the center of-
1: Well, it's interesting that you say that. <laughs> <Only> because- okay. <laughs> uh, interesting that you bring that up um, because I don't believe in failure or success. And maybe, mm-hmm. maybe that means that I wind up in the mediocrity of the middle, but I don't think so.
0: I don't think that's gonna happen. Yeah,
1: yeah I think that the reason that I don't believe in those words is their value judgment on experience. Uh They are value judgments on experience. And it really limits our ability to learn from experience, to experience experience, if we are already setting up an expectation of what needs to happen. And success is an expectation and failure is an expectation. Fear of either is also expectation that will lead you down the wrong path, right? It's like that awful saying, you know hope for the what is it prepare for the worst and hope for the best i'm like what the fuck you know (laughs) i'm sorry i'm like don't don't prepare do just do right right. take a step and the path appears now that doesn't mean that path is a straight road that you may switch and turn and pivot and whatever but you got to move you got to be a little bit like a shark and this idea that you get stuck in the you know trappings of what success needs to look like or what failure is going to be is almost sapping the energy that you could be funneling into whatever your idea is. Mm. And so, you know, it's what I was saying before. I don't know what's going to happen with my company. I know I'm going to do everything I can to make the company, let's say, profitable, well-known, and useful. But I don't even think about it in terms of success or failure. Just maybe because, as you said, I came to this at the time that I knew that I needed it. And strangely on what not to wear, you know, we were only doing, we were only making over one person during a show, but that one person was an individual out of which universals could be made true. So even if you weren't, let's say I'm using me as an example, right? Five, six or five, seven, I don't know how tall I am anymore, but you know, and you know, whatever size I am, if you couldn't say, oh, I have that body like Stacy. You could say, well, I don't have that body. And I'm going to dress based on the rules that they're giving her are not my rules, right? They're, out of the individual came the universal. Mm. And I believe that so strongly for creating a business or creating a community, you are never alone. It is why 12-step programs work. It is why chat rooms and Facebook communities work. It is because we are not alone in our own humanity. We just aren't. And so once you recognize the pain points that you may be experiencing, you can go out and find like-minded people. And that is the upside of social media and technology. It is a hell of a lot easier to find them if you are living, you know, somewhere in the middle of the country and feel all alone to find your tribe. To find, you know, again, back to that idea of tribalism, it is shorthand. It is the way in which we talk to each other and the other person knows exactly what we mean.
0: It, so talking, you, you touched on a couple of things here. So, so there's TV yeah. um, and, and, you know, TV is, you know, what it is. It's one way yeah. communication on a mass scale. Yeah. Um, and now we have, and social media is this completely different animal. And, I, and, and you mentioned earlier in the conversation how you thought that perhaps people that are younger are f- formed, they have different um, priorities, better priorities, I would say, than what we had um, back then, and that may be informed by their social, do you feel that's social media thing?
1: I do. Well, I think social media has something to do with it. I mean, again, I think every younger generation learns from the generation before what, what it doesn't want to be, right? Hmm. And... Um, And in terms of social media, I think that the the upside really has been, even if you're, you know, alone together, as uh, I think was Shelley Turkle's book is called Alone Together, that, you know, the dark side of social media is that, you know, all of our necks are going to be, you know, bent over completely looking at devices. And the fact is that you're not in the same room with somebody Right. And you are, you know, but the but the the thing about it is, is that you are connecting with people in a way that was not possible before you are finding people when you feel like you're alone in the world, um, which I think is incredibly important. And I do think that um, social causes. Can spread like wildfire, you know, on social media, where that was very hard to do before. Even even with television campaigns, I mean, you know, even with like the Ad Council doing things for causes and things like that, it was net. It's never been as effective as what we've seen on social. But it's interesting. I <clears throat> I gave a keynote speech years ago. Okay, at um for Cosmopolitan magazine and uh. The funny thing about it was that it was all kids, all mostly women who had just gotten out of college, right? And I think they thought that I was gonna give a speech about like the best vegan leather leggings and what's my favorite liquid liner and how to dress for the job you want. And instead I took the opportunity to talk about three things that um, really applied to social media, right? The first is that I said, you know, to these young kids, and and really the the response I got was sort of like crickets at the time. So I was a little bit uh, horrified. But what I was talking about was this idea of identity, right? And that social media is not your identity. Whoever you are online, you know however whether you're comparing yourself to other people or not if you're miserable because you're looking online and you don't have everybody else's life social media your media accounts are not your identity they are a tool but they are not who you are and then i talked about this woman who basically you know garnered i don't know something like 6 million followers on instagram and finally said I'm giving this up. I do not want to live a two-dimensional life. I'm no longer, all I worry about is posting and whether or not it's the right picture and editing it and you know, all of these things. And it's not like I'm just taking a selfie. I'm taking 4,000 selfies and then I'm deciding what to post online. This isn't real. I want my real life back. And then I was saying you know, about the second thing, well, how did I know about her? How did I know about this woman? who's uh, honestly, I, I think she was in New Zealand and I can't remember her name, but this was years ago and also brain fog. So there you go. Um, but what I was like, how did I find out about her? Well, I Googled her. And when I grew up, we didn't have Google. We went to the library. I was forced to look at encyclopedias. I was you know looking for reference books. There is a huge piece of what discovery means now missing from what I found to be so rewarding in terms of learning. And I use the example of, I remember there was like one point in the middle of winter, we'd been shooting what not to wear like nonstop. I was completely exhausted. I didn't feel like I could, I just couldn't, my spirit was just like, just completely Down in the dumps, and I didn't know what to do. So, what did I do? I go on Amazon and I order a bunch of canvases, a bunch of brushes, a bunch of acrylic paints, and I just locked myself away for a weekend and started painting. But I had no expectations of what to do with it other than to put paint on canvas. And even during that weekend, I learned that mixing it with water or mixing it with like gesso or I think it's pronounced "gesso." So whatever, you know, mixing these things or using a flat brush versus a round brush, all of these different things, mixing red with blue to make purple, all of these things that I never would have felt half as enjoyable if I'd read a book on how to paint with acrylics, right? Then I would have had an expectation of everything that I was supposed to get right. So this process of discovery is a very important one. And for me, is something that technology has taken a lot away from, from the actual act of doing. We just sit online and Google how to do everything instead of really just figuring it out for ourselves. And the third thing that I talked about in terms of social media is intimacy. Because, you know, now you can just swipe right to meet the person of your dreams or not, but, the idea that we are already we're already starting conversations with people without ever seeing their face or their facial reactions, without you know what it means to lock eyes with somebody at a party or at a bar and walk get up enough guts to walk up to them and say, hey, you know, or anything like that, is is somewhat distressing to me, is somewhat dehumanizing to me. And even though, look, I know lots of people who met online and are getting married, you know, I'm not saying that it doesn't work. I'm just saying that we, there's the lost art of what it means to actually physically be in a space with somebody, what it means to read social cues, what it means the, that, you know, there is a spike in dopamine when you hug somebody that you don't get from swiping right. Oxytocin. And- the oxytocin. Okay. So those are the, yes, excuse me. So those are the things that I, I worry about with social media. Those are things that, and perhaps younger generations don't care because they don't have, you know, their brains are formed differently if they're digitally native. But when I think about the things that really matter to me, when I think about what I'm bringing into age, I don't want to lose those things. I don't wanna lose a sense of identity outside of how I am perceived externally on any social media. I don't wanna lose that sense of wonder when it comes to discovery without expectation. And I don't wanna lose what true intimacy feels like. It's not just being able to be anonymous and say whatever you feel like saying, you know, some X-rated text conversation. It is about what it means to physically have intimacy in proximity to people and that to me that is a sign of of my age those are things that I still hold as very dear values and things that I still try to instill in young people
0: yeah I didn't mean to, I, I um the oxytocin dopamine thing is something that I get confused and I um had uh Dr. Anna Lemke on who wrote uh-huh. Do- dopamine nation and I mistakenly used those and she immediately corrected me about what was what um and the, yeah social media is a, a dopamine hit yeah. um and we get actually if you what she tells me is that you sort of dull your dopamine receptors by constantly you know taking this essentially drug all the time yeah. and so that anything that becomes uncomfortable becomes so incredibly uncomfortable that you need more dopamine whereas oxytocin is what you get when you hug somebody you don't yeah. get a dopamine hit; you get oxytocin. a very different thing. The, but tell me, as you look forward, Stacy, wh- where do you see social media going?
1: Well, I mean, if you know, we were—I think we were talking about this earlier. But uh, you know, not that this is uh, specific to any time, but but it just so happens that yesterday, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, all owned by Facebook, went out right for five hours—the huge blackout of 2021. Um, And it really made me realize that you know, I think certainly as a company, certainly as the head of a brand, I very much want our community to feel like they are not dependent on an outside social media platform to connect. And I think that brands are gonna start to look at this more seriously. That they have ownership over uh, community chat rooms or they have ownership over uh, feeds and the way in which you can interact with somebody on a site rather than on a social media platform, and I think also just in terms of the fact that it's not just ownership; it's the the safety protocols that we're starting to see. You know, our data is being sold all over the place. You know, ways in which to safeguard um, ourselves from you know identity theft or what, whatever the hell it is. Just having ways to use. Uh, you know, digital platforms in a way that that safeguards and protects the kinds of conversations that people want to be having. Um, that kind of big social media platforms are starting to take away from us, and that doesn't mean there won't be a zillion new platforms. I mean, you know, even in the last year, I've seen like Clubhouse and Tweet, uh, not Tweet, <laughs> Quilt, and a couple of others. You know, there are. There are apps like Peanut that are fantastic for women who are pregnant or who are going through menopause. There are, you know, apps like there, there's new companies like Mighty Networks, which is, you know, a, another kind of social media platform. But I think it's very important for individuals to retain kind of ownership over their, their um, participation in these kinds of things. And the more we see social media take over, the more we see social media kind of create one. You know, obviously that report that just came out about Instagram um, having a really negative effect on the way young women see themselves, that they are constantly comparing themselves to people whose lives they don't have, and that it is having a difficult, you know, they are having a difficult time with that um, emotionally and psychologically. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think we're going to have to figure out how the upside of social can be retained by you know, in some way, decreasing um, the downside of it. And that's not to say we'll be able to get rid of it. Obviously, it's, it's, you know, with good comes bad. But I think that there is going to have to be sort of some way to kind of, you know, rethink our perspective about what social media can give us, and what it's taking away.
0: The current the way it's set up now it just seems so like last century to me this idea of the agreed the the monetization of personal data the the algorithms that amplify outrage that it just seems like um why are we still doing this
1: yeah and also why are we still so busy liking everything like that that kind of external validation (laughs) is so exhausting I would much rather get on this podcast and be like, hey, David, I like you than have to fucking push a button or push a heart. And so, you know, right? I mean, and all of this weird things that people intimate from the idea that somebody liked their picture. I mean, I remember when Instagram was first starting, I had a friend who was like, Oh my God, he, he liked my photo. I was like, I don't think that says much about whether or not he wants to date you. I'm just, I'm just, I'm putting that out there.
0: <laughs> I love that okay. stuff though. I just,
1: it makes I just me... love
0: the Ouija board of that stuff. It's really funny. <laughs> it's
1: so funny. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, to me, that's ludicrous. And again, I'm not, I'm not 13 years old. But I am still in a position where if I spend too much time on social media, I start to get depressed about my life. I start to get depressed about like, where did I go wrong that I don't have this like, you know, $2 billion house on this mountain that looks so perfect? Or, you know, what I, why don't I have, you know, hair that looks like hers? Why don't I have clothes that look like that? I feel like everybody is susceptible to it. If we're not really paying attention to how, you know, what, what the, what, how harmful the effects of this can be. And, and the idea that this is a highlight reel of life, this is not life. Again, full circle, going back to M. Scott Peck, life is hard and it doesn't look like an Instagram social media reel. And, and we, we, are, we are starting to blur those lines in a way that I think is quite dangerous for people.
0: Yeah, I have, uh, I could really go off on, I won't, like, the, the fa- Facebook and Zook are like my nuclear button. And
1: I, I don't even I, know what Zook is. Zuckerberg. Oh, Zuckerberg. I think, big, okay. yes.
0: Big, big Mark. Yeah.
1: Right. First of all, I thought Ooh. you were like, Zook, it's a new audio-only <laughs> platform, and I'm like, that's probably oh, that's, what's going to wind up happening. That's really brilliant. Oh, I love that. Yeah, let's just call it that. Um, And look, you know, I mean, they are nuclear buttons, right? For all the good that they do in bringing people together, there is all the bad. And I'm not sure that we can escape that entirely, you know, by by trying to optimize the good and sort of decrease the bad. Who knows whether that's even possible. But, Mm. you know, while we are still um a generation of people who are not digitally native you know and in a lot of ways I mean look I, I didn't even know how to use g-suite when I started this company that tells me you a lot about me okay <laughs> yeah. um I was like oh you want me to make you an email I have no idea how to do that but <laughs> here we are you know whatever it is eight months later and I'm doing it Um, And if I never believed in neuroplasticity, let me tell you something I do now, because at 52 years old, I have taught myself so much about business, so much about e-commerce, so much about technology that I never had any interest in because it it wasn't what I was doing. But the thing is, when you have a passion for something, when you know that you are in the right place, and I will tell you, the last time I felt this way was when I started What Not To Wear. Mm. It was the last time that I could, and I was 32 right? So 20 years later. But when I started went on to Wear, immediately, I felt like all the experience that I had done previously, all the jobs that I'd done, all the things that I'd studied, it was like, as Steve Jobs used to say, connecting the dots backwards. And I knew that I was in the right place. 20 years later, I have that same feeling now. I have that same feeling that Everything that I have done, every hardship, every heartbreak, everything I've had, I've done professionally, that I've accomplished, all of my achievements, everything has brought me to this moment. And I want to be a a symbol of somebody who said, yeah, at 52, okay, I'm going to do something different and mean it and do it. And again, success and failure, I can't think about that. I have to think about whether or not like this really makes me feel like I have a purpose in my life. I have a meaning in my life. I have something to look forward to every day that I want to get out of bed and I want to make a difference. And I will tell you, um, there is an incredible doctor. You may have interviewed him or know him, Dr. Uh, Atul Gawande, who wrote the book, um, uh, Being Mortal, mm-hmm. and, which, was, which was an amazing incredible- book for me. I read it when my dad was sick. And and Mm. it it literally changed the way that I spoke to my father. Mm. He he taught me so much about what it means not to die, but to live well, Um, Mm -hmm. as you are, you know, sort of in declining health. But the most important thing was the study that he talks about in his book, In a Nursing Home, where they gave everyone a parakeet. They brought in like eight cats and six dogs. And everybody in the nursing home was responsible for their care. And there was a 50% decrease in meds in that entire community, whether it was anti-anxiety or anti-depression, because meaning and purpose drive our desire to be alive they just do. And it doesn't matter how small or how big or how relevant or whatever it means in the scheme of things that that purpose is, it just matters to you. It just has to matter for you.
0: It just, um, a little bit of science on that um, is that uh, I interviewed Dr. Ken Vu a few weeks ago. Uh-huh. He, he has this um, bioenergetic model of like how to live better. And you know it's the a lot of the first six there's seven steps and the first six are like you know eat the right stuff, sleep exercise this sort of stuff blah blah you know the usual <laughs> right? just like just like don't do dumb stuff and then the last one is have a sense of purpose and I was like, wait a minute kid help me to understand how does purpose intersect with epigenetic change And he was like, oh no, it's real like they've done these studies and what and you'll love this so I said, well I don't I, Okay, so there's studies like, where does this come from? And he said, well, think about it. As we came from single cell organisms to multi-cell organisms, we had to cooperate. And in mm. a body, a non-cooperating cell is called cancer. Um, it doesn't work out. Like we're, we are like wired to the most primitive DNA to cooperate with others and to have purpose and, and to help each other out. And that's, you know, and he went on to talk about the science of how, the epi- your epigenome signals your dna differently when you have purpose I mean, it like blew my mind
1: that totally <laughs> blew my mind but right? i also have amazing. to say the other thing that i did when i when my dad was very sick was that i started reading um, quantum mechanics and astrophysics books about those two subjects one because i loved this idea that on some level know the universe is always expanding and we are made of this material and and we are all connected right and to me what was so interesting about this in the largest way in astrophysics and in the smallest way in quantum mechanics everything is part of everything else the sense of cooperation it's also so strange to me that it's sort of the basis of religion Mm. in this idea that like you know turn the other cheek if you hurt someone else you're hurting yourself all of these notions, you know, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. I mean, these are all expressions of the exact kind of cooperation that we see in the universe, that we see in physics, that we see in epigenetics. I mean, this to me is absolutely all part of the same thing. This is all part of what, I mean, truly, if I'm if I'm being a little bit woo for a second, if you'll excuse me, but I think that humans, are, an express, are, are how the universe expresses itself. Mm. We are you know, part of the universe being able to experience fear, loss, sadness, joy, triumph, all of these things. We're just an expression of all of that. And I find that incredibly reassuring. I find that, I find that to make purpose even more wonderful because it is an expression of what the universe wants to feel.
0: Give me your non-negotiables. What are the things that are like non-negotiable for you in your life today? Give me top three.
1: Oh, God. Come on. Um, on the spot. Oh, God. I know. I was going to say non-negotiables. Non-negotiables. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I was going to say, you gotta like, have. I mean, what do I have to have? Okay. Yeah. All right. Let me think about it. I'm sorry. This is, this is a big question, and I really want to be honest about <laughs> okay. it. Okay. All right. Non-negotiables are that I need at least one gluten-free vegan sweet a week. And that could be a cookie or a brownie, but it's got to be so. That's a non-negotiable for me. Right on. Non-negotiable for me is that I have to say no. I have to, as much as I say yes, I have to say no. Mm. And, you know, there are a lot of people talking about how it's so important to say no, but I've never truly understood that. I I think I used to be much more of a people pleaser than I am now, but also just that idea of even when I'm trying to be kind, I'm not being kind. If I say yes, and I don't have the bandwidth to do something, then I'm either going to disappoint you or I'm going to be shitty at it. So saying no is an absolute non-negotiable for me. And I would say the third non-negotiable for me are snoogles with my dog and my girlfriend. If I don't get snoogled, (laughs) I'm not a happy bunny. <laughs>
0: um, uh, so I'll, I'll tell you mine. Somebody asked me this question yes, the other day. I was gonna say did,
1: everything else is up for grabs. So you tell me.
0: So, uh, um, I need sleep. I don't, uh-huh. I don't, I don't care what I, I need to sleep, sleep. Um, I need to go to the gym, uh-huh. and I need to have time with my wife, with my family. Yeah. Like, I mean, I would good.
1: say. I don't sleep because I constantly have insomnia. Although I do, uh, this is not a plug of any kind. I'm not getting paid or anything, but my friend started a company called sleepy bear gummies, which are melatonin and CBN. Oh yeah. It is literally the only thing. I mean, I haven't slept since 2007. So just to be clear, I am like, I would, I would, I felt lucky if I got three to four hours a night Now I can get up to seven, which is a miracle upon miracle. So just, just in terms of sleep. And then um, I would do anything not to go to the gym, but I am trying now (laughs) in in menopause to realize the importance of it for longevity, for strength, for mobility, for balance, things that are going to stop me from falling things that I won't have to have more spine surgery. So for me, I always equated dieting and exercise with losing weight and vanity right I'm never good enough I'm never good enough instead of it being being about the discovery and the process enjoying Mm. process and that's how I'm starting to look at exercise which I could never have done before I mean it was so attached to kind of negative Body dysmorphia for me—that mm. um, it really got in the way of me ever being very good at anything athletic or otherwise, because I was always so embarrassed in my body, mm. and I'm trying so hard not to let go of that. Because at 52, who the hell cares? Do you know what I mean? It's not that I don't want to be—I uh, I, I just mean it from a vanity point of view. I now I care about being strong, as opposed to the way I look. Um, and that's a very different feeling. So this morning I went to the gym and I had strength training and I was like, you know, I am woman, hear me roar. Because like <laughs> here I was like deadlifting shit. And I just, you know, now, now, even though it's hard for me to get there, even though I dread going, there's such a reward in just doing it. Not, it's, you know, some people really get high off of it or they really love it because that's how they deal with anxiety. Me, I'd rather watch the entire internet and never leave the couch. But now exercise has a different meaning for me. And yes, and my family, my family, you know, my, my girlfriend and my dog are, are sort of, we're our own little family unit. And then, you know, my, my extended family, meaning my, my sisters, my stepmom. absolutely agree with you. Those are, those are non-negotiables. But it's funny, I don't think about them that way because they're so embedded in me. But I really believe that as, you know, as I age, and certainly since I lost my dad, there, my entire relationship to the world has changed. I, am, I don't hold grudges as much anymore. I am much more curious about people than I was. I think that there is something to this idea that, you know, Elizabeth Lesser wrote that book, Broken Open. There are things in life that happen that are so incredibly painful that you kind of become a phoenix rising from the ashes. And for me, the person that I have become after losing my dad is someone I like so much more. And I, I didn't even know that I was, you know, busy disliking myself. I didn't know that it wasn't conscious. It's that losing him broke me open in a way that changed my relationship with other people, with the world around me, with my environment, in a way that it just, you know, it's such a blessing. It sort of makes me love him more and you know i i wonder all the time i wish i could talk to him all the time about this new company about what i'm trying to do about why menopause and aging are related but and they're conflated but they're not the same i want his opinions i want his thoughts like sometimes it's really hard for me to kind of navigate this ship and know that like i can't pick up the phone and 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 talk to him but at the same time i i feel like i've been given this gift of Complete reinvention that allows me to operate in the world in a completely different way. And it is such a gift. It is such an unbelievable gift to wake up and, like, I don't know, get to talk to you. Like, maybe that would never have happened if I hadn't started this company. Maybe I wouldn't be able to be as empathetic or transparent about my own problems and fears if I hadn't started living into them. There's just so much to do at, as you said, any age. And it really is just a decision to do it. And uh, please, I'm begging you, let go of expectation. Expectation is the death of possibility. Go and do and see what happens.
0: I love that. You're awesome, Stacey.
1: You're awesome too.
0: We're going to hang out.
1: (laughs) I can't wait. Whenever (laughs) you come to New York, I can't wait to host you.
0: We're going to do, um, I, I mentioned in an earlier conversation that, um, I I have a spin bike and what I do is it's party time on my, it's me and slide and the family stone (laughs) on the bike because I like to dance and that's how I, that's, that's how I get high in the morning. Me and Sly on the bike.
1: Well, you know, I really like pop music. I'm a big Harry Styles fan, Mm, maybe not as big as my girlfriend, but, um, I am a big Harry Styles fan and I like Justin Bieber, and I like Troye Sivan, and I know, I'm like a 13-year-old girl when it comes to music. I love, you know, do a leap, but like anybody who's in the top 40, I'm kind of obsessed with, and so whenever we go to the gym, I try and make my trainer put on pop music, and he, he wants to kill me, but I will tell you, <laughs> certainly it really gets me going in the morning. Also, I do, I'm a big Eminem fan, so there's I, that.
0: I, I photographed him once.
1: <sighs> Did you really? What was it like? Tell me everything.
0: Uh, well, um, it was a big story for the New York Times Magazine, and uh, Marshall was in a bit of a bad phase then. Oh no! And um, I'll tell you about it sometime. It was yes. Probably, I, I, you know, back when I, I did that sort of thing, I was a, you know, I met, I, did, I did Mike Tyson. I did a lot of like really sort of, they like they never gave me. I said, "Why don't you give me like a movie star, some like right. somebody easy?" No, they'd always give me like the sociopaths, right? <laughs> and they'd be like, "They'd be like, oh, you're really good with these people." It's like, okay, she's like hey, give me an easy one once in a while. Um, but that was—I'll tell you the story when we meet. One of the weirdest experiences of my life. I, I cannot totally wait. To hear.
1: It. <laughs> but you know, he came out with this single with Jack Harlow, and there's there. Oh God, I can't remember the the other rapper who's on it. Um, called Killer. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, when I'm in a bad mood, my girlfriend will just turn it on because I start like I just get into it right away. I start dancing in my seat. I start <laughs> rapping. And um, it is pretty funny to watch me try and rap. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I, I
0: want to see that. Yeah, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't stop
1: me from trying. But uh, even my girlfriend is like, oh, maybe you want to just give this a rest. But um <laughs> but you know the thing is like it's like that whole idea of like just finding what moves you whether whether it's the bike or the weights or the music or anything i just i i feel like i've learned so much that that happiness and joy is not um it's not owed to us and right. the idea that we have to go out and make it um makes it harder and that much more rewarding so wherever i find moments of joy i just i fucking take them i i collect them and you know that's that's the that's the easiest way to get through life
0: Um, only you can do that yeah right no i'm gonna let you go i i feel like um you're my new bff uh (laughs) and uh, well
1: i i i feel that way too and i really i hope that you and your wife will come visit we would love you know Kat and i would love to host you and um this was awesome. <laughs> it was really awesome. I just I I can't tell you how much I appreciate the idea of this podcast and you doing it and not just, you know, not just an idea in your head. Um and I I just feel like this is this is uh, it it's so meaningful in so many ways having nothing to do with menopause. And 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 yet there's so much about being able to talk about what's possible now, as opposed to, you know, things that I could never have done or thought of or, or been afraid to leap into at 32, at 35, even at 40. And so this idea that there's like a, a sense of courage and bravery that comes along with age and wisdom, um, I, I really, I, I, it really took me a long time to instill that in myself. I hope it doesn't take the people who come behind us as long. I I, I hope it's something that we can, we can certainly teach our youth.
0: We'll see. I hope so. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: I know. I mean, I mean, you know, we're, we're better off than our parents and then, uh, you know,
1: Yeah. agreed, agreed. uh, That's why menopause will not be a taboo topic 20 years from now.
0: You got it. I'm going to let you go. Okay. Awesome.
1: All right. Talk soon.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Super Aid Show. It is great to have you with us. You know, I the backstory with Stacy was um, I'd been connected through a mutual friend, and we spoke on the phone maybe two or three weeks ago, just as sort of an intro conversation. And it, we scheduled I don't know five or ten minutes. We ended up speaking for an hour. Um, I think she is brilliant, and anybody who's out there who's does things like create television shows. Give this woman a talk show. She is just awesome. Um, We need her back on the air. Uh, Hey, if you liked the show this week, please leave us a comment. Um, Please leave us a rating. And please tell your friends about this awesome show with Stacey London. Um, I I just think it's brilliant what she's doing. Next week on the show, we're going to try and understand ketones. And what is all this keto diet? What is ketosis? How does this happen? How do we do it? How do we register it? I just think there's so much confusion, like, out there, you know, things you read and and in the grocery store. So we've got an expert coming on next week to help us unpack that. Hope you join us for that show. Have a wonderful week. It is just so great to have you all with us and have your support. Take care. Bye now.